Chapter Thirteen, Part One of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shasta, Oakland, California. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 7, by John Hay and John George Nicolay, Chapter 13, Part 1, The Defeat of the Peace Party at the Poles. The reverses sustained by the Union arms during the summer and autumn of 1862 had their direct effect in the field of politics every unsuccessful movement and especially every defeat of the national forces increased the strength and audacity of the opposition to the government and the war there were it is true hundreds of thousands of democratic soldiers in the ranks fighting to uphold the union and as a result of this because men's sentiments are far more influenced by their actions than their actions are inspired by their sentiments, they were generally induced to take the Republican view of public affairs, and by degrees to unite themselves with the Republican Party. But they seemed to exert no influence whatever upon their friends and relations at home the democratic party remained as solid in its organization as powerful in its resistance to the government as ever the great liberating measure of the president the proclamation of september had its influence also in exasperating and consolidating the opposition this act which not only renders his name immortal but glorifies the age in which he lived contributed to the defeat of his party in some of the more important states of the union in the autumn of eighteen sixty two the democrats carried new york electing horatio seymour governor over that patriotic an accomplished gentleman, General James S. Wadworth. The adjoining state of New Jersey was also carried by them. There were heavy losses of congressmen in the great states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana, and even in the president's own state of Illinois, the opposition inflicted upon him a peculiarly painful defeat electing nine of his opponents and only four of his friends the union sentiment was still sufficiently powerful throughout the north to elect an easy working majority in the house of representatives and the republican predominance in the senate was of course untouched so that, so far as legislation was concerned, there was no danger that the government would be embarrassed 
by an opposition majority but the losses it met with in the elections were none the less serious and discouraging a war disapproved by a free people cannot long be carried on by the will of the government and if the ratio of losses indicated by the elections of eighteen sixty two had continued another year the permanency of the republic would have been gravely compromised but the intelligence of the american people gradually acknowledged the wisdom and accepted the leadership of the president and moved forward to the advanced platform upon which mr lincoln had placed himself the right of suffrage given by the state legislatures to the soldiers in the field reinforced the voting strength of the republicans at home and the ballot and the bullet worked harmoniously together nevertheless in the autumn of eighteen sixty two mr lincoln was exposed to the bitterest assaults and criticisms from every faction in the country his conservative supporters reproached him with having yielded to the wishes of the radicals the radicals denounced him for being hampered if not corrupted by the influence of the conservatives on one side he was assailed by a clamor for peace on the other by vehement and injurious demands for a more vigorous prosecution of the war he stood unmoved by these attacks converging upon him from every quarter and rarely took the trouble to defend himself against them coming from every side the pressure neutralized itself like that of the atmosphere to one friend who assailed him with peculiar candor he made a reply which may answer as a sufficient defense to all the radical attacks which were so rife at the time i have just received and read your letter of the twentieth the purport of it is that we lost the late elections and the administration is failing because the war is unsuccessful and that i must not flatter myself that i am not justly to blame for it i certainly know that if the war fails the administration fails and that i will be blamed for it whether i deserve it or not and i ought to be blamed if i could do better you think i could do better therefore you blame me already i think i could not do better therefore i blame you for blaming me i understand you now to be willing to accept the help of men who are not republicans provided that they have quote heart in it unquote agreed i want no others but who is to be the judge of hearts or of quote heart in it unquote if i must discard my own judgment and take yours i must also take that of others and by the time i should reject all 
I should be advised to reject, I should have none left, Republicans or others, not even yourself. For be assured, my dear sir, that there are men who have, quote, heart in it, unquote, that think you are performing your part as poorly as you think I am performing mine. I certainly have been dissatisfied with the slowness of Boole and McClellan, but before I relieved them, I had great fears I should not find successors to them who would do better. And I am sorry to add that I have seen little since to relieve those fears. I do not clearly see the prospect of any more rapid movements. I fear we shall at last find out that the difficulty is in our case rather than in particular generals. I wish to disparage no one, certainly not those who sympathize with me, but I must say I need success more than I need sympathy and that I have not seen the so much greater evidence of getting success from my sympathizers than from those who are denounced as the contrary. It does seem to me that in the field the two classes have been very much alike in what they have done and what they have failed to do. In sealing their faith with their blood, Baker and Lyon and Bolin and Richardson, Republicans did all that Med could do, but did they any more than Kearney and Stevens and Reno and Mansfield, none of whom were Republicans, and some at least of whom have been bitterly and repeatedly denounced to me as secession sympathizers? I will not perform the ungrateful task of comparing cases of failure. In answer to your question, has it not been publicly stated in the newspapers and apparently proved as a fact that from the commencement of the war, the enemy was continually supplied with information by some of the confidential subordinates of as important an officer as Adjutant General Thomas? I must say no as far as my knowledge extends. And I add that if you can give any tangible evidence upon the subject, I will thank you to come to this city and do so. The movements for peace which were made at this period on both sides of the line were feeble and without result. Henry S. Foote of Tennessee introduced a resolution in the Confederate House of Representatives to the effect quote, that the signal success with which divine providence has so continually blessed our arms for several months past would fully justify the Confederate government in dispatching a commissioner or commissioners to the government at Washington City, empowered to propose the terms of a just and honorable peace. Unquote. Hines Holt of Georgia offered as a substitute a resolution setting forth that 
the people of the confederate states have been always anxious for peace and that quote, whenever the government of the united states shall manifest a like anxiety it should be the duty of the president of the confederate states to appoint commissioners to treat upon the subject unquote. but both resolution and substitute were laid on the table by a large majority in the senate of the united states garrett davis offered a resolution recommending to the state to choose delegates to a convention to be held at louisville kentucky to take into consideration the condition of the united states and the proper means for a restoration of the union this was laid upon the table mr vallandigham also offered resolutions for peace in the house of representatives but neither in the north nor in the south was there at that time a party sufficiently powerful to bring any measures for peace to the point of legislation though on both sides there was a strong current of agitation for the termination of the war which being regarded and treated as treasonable was easily held in check from time to time there were unauthorized attempts of individuals inspired by restlessness or a love of notoriety to set on foot amateur negotiations for peace one of the most active and persistent of the peace politicians of the north was fernando wood of new york he held a unique position in his party while strongly sympathizing with the secessionists and openly affiliating with them in public he nevertheless tried to keep up a sort of furtive confidential relation with the leading members of the government he frequently visited the white house the state department and the treasury department but emulated the discretion of nicodemus as to the hour of his visits no rebuffs daunted him he apparently cared nothing for the evident distrust with which his overtures were received he kept them up as long as the war lasted probably in the hope that the time might come for him to play a conspicuous and important part in the final negotiations for peace he used every occasion to ingratiate himself with the president he wrote congratulating him on the change in the war department in the beginning of eighteen sixty two as indicating the president's quote, ability to govern and also his executive power and will unquote. later in the same year he wrote complaining that the radical abolitionists of new york represented him as hostile to the administration and 
as in sympathy with the states in rebellion against the government he denied these charges and begged the president to quote, rely upon his support in his efforts to maintain the integrity of the union unquote. in september after making a speech furiously denouncing the government for its arbitrary arrests he wrote a confidential note to the president making the usual explanation that he had been incorrectly reported quote, all i said applied to those arrests that had been made through error or misrepresentation and exclusively as to the truly loyal unquote. in november after a similar tirade he wrote to mr seward with a striking lack of originality making the same pl plea of an incorrect report i did not he said utter the treasonable sentiments reported having in this way as he thought established himself in the confidence of the president he wrote him a letter on the eighth of december eighteen sixty two pretending that he had reliable and truthful authority to say that the southern states would send representatives to the next congress provided that a full and general amnesty should permit them to do so no guarantee or terms being asked for other than the amnesty referred to as an humble but loyal citizen deeply impressed with the great necessity of restoring the union of these states i ask your immediate attention to this subject the magnitude of the interests at stake warrants some executive action predicated upon this information if it be only to ascertain whether it be grounded upon even probable foundation if it shall prove groundless no harm shall have been done provided the inquiry be made as it can be without compromising the government or injury to the glorious cause in which it is now engaged if however it shall prove well founded there is no estimate too high to place upon its national value the immediate object of his letter became evident in the following paragraph now therefore mr president i suggest that gentlemen whose former social and political relations with the leaders of the southern revolt may be allowed to hold unofficial correspondence with them on this subject the correspondence to be submitted to you it may be thus ascertained what if any credence may be given to these statements and also whether a peaceful solution of the present struggle may not be attainable the president answered on the twelfth of december referring to the first paragraph above quoted he said i strongly suspect your information will prove to be groundless nevertheless i thank you for communicating it to me 
understanding the phrase in the paragraph above quoted quote, the southern states would send representatives to the next congress unquote, to be substantially the same as that quote, the people of the southern states would cease resistance and would re-inaugurate submit to and maintain the national authority within the limits of such states under the constitution of the united states unquote. i say that in such case the war would cease on the part of the united states and that if within a reasonable time quote, a full and general amnesty unquote, were necessary to such end it would not be withheld i do not think it would be proper now for me to communicate this formally or informally to the people of the southern states my belief is that they already know it and when they choose if ever they can communicate with me unequivocally nor do i think it proper now to suspend military operations to try any experiment of negotiation i should nevertheless receive with great pleasure the exact information you now have and also such other as you may in any way obtain such information might be more valuable before the first of january than afterwards these last words refer of course to the impending proclamation of emancipation between the date of mr lincoln's letter and mr wood's reply came the frightful carnage at fredericksburg which emboldened him to say that the president's reply had filled him with profound regret Quote, it declines what i had conceived to be an innocent effort to ascertain the foundation for the information in my possession of a desire in the south to return to the union it thus appears to be an indication on your part to continue a policy which in my judgment is not only unwise but in the opinion of many is in conflict with the constitutional authority vested in the federal government unquote. he protested earnestly against this policy and felt encouraged to renew the suggestions of his letter of the eighth quote, i feel that military operations so bloody and exhausting as ours must sooner or later be suspended the day of suspension must come the only question is whether it shall be before the whole american people north and south shall be involved in general ruin or whether it shall be whilst there is remaining sufficient of the recuperative element of life by which to restore our once happy prosperous and peaceful american union unquote. to this letter the president made no reply 
other volunteers from time to time tendered their services in the same field duff green a virginia politician wrote to the president from richmond as early as the twentieth of january asking permission to visit washington he said that if he could see mr lincoln and converse with him on the subject he could do much to pave the way for an early termination of the war receiving no encouragement from washington he asked the same permission from richmond but this request came to nothing in the summer of eighteen sixty three however an effort for peace negotiations was made which came with such high sanction and involved personages of such individual and political importance that it requires particular mention about the middle of june alexander h stevens vice-president of the southern confederacy became convinced that the time was auspicious for initiating negotiations for peace he thought he saw reasons for great encouragement in the attitude of the north the great gains of the democratic party in the last autumnal elections the pamphlet of judge benjamin r curtis attacking the measures of the administration a public meeting in favor of peace held without disturbance in the city of new york in which violent speeches were made by fernando wood and others and the nomination for governor of ohio of Vallandigham are all mentioned by him as facts going to show that the people of the north were wearying of the war on this insufficient evidence he wrote to jefferson davis proposing that he should go to washington ostensibly to negotiate some questions involving the exchange of prisoners but saying that he was not without hope that indirectly he could now turn attention to a general adjustment upon such basis as might ultimately be acceptable to both parties and stop the further effusion of blood in a contest so irrational unchristian and so inconsistent with all recognized american principles he assured mr davis that he entertained but one idea of the basis of final adjustment the recognition of the sovereignty of the states and the right of each in its sovereign capacity to determine its own destiny he did not believe the federal government was yet ripe for such acknowledgment but he did believe that the time had come for a proper presentation of the question to the authorities at washington Quote, while therefore he says a mission might be dispatched on a minor point the greater one
could possibly with prudence discretion and skill be opened to view and brought in discussion in a way that would lead eventually to successful results this would depend upon many circumstances unquote. he adds complacently quote, but no little upon the character and efficiency of the agent so feeling i have been prompted to address you these lines unquote. upon the receipt of this letter mr davis sent a telegram requesting his vice-president to go immediately to richmond he arrived there on the twenty second of june but in the ten days which had elapsed since his letter was written he found that changes of the utmost importance had taken place in the military situation on the one hand the confederate authorities had despaired of the condition of pemberton at vicksburg and expected that any day might bring them tidings of his surrender but on the other hand they were anticipating with sanguine enthusiasm the most magnificent results from lee's invasion of pennsylvania mr stevens in the work which he wrote at his leisure after the war was ended represents that in these changed conditions he was inclined to give up his mission thinking that no good could result from it as the movement of lee into pennsylvania would greatly excite the war spirit and strengthen the war party a view of the case in which mr davis positively declined to agree he thought mr lincoln would be more likely to receive a commissioner for peace if general lee's army was actually threatening washington than if it was lying quietly south of the rappahannock the confederate cabinet being called together they agreed with mr davis they thought the federal government might be best approached while under the threat of the guns of lee and before they should receive fresh hope and encouragement from the surrender of pemberton which was now considered inevitable an arrangement was made for stephens to proceed by land on the route taken by lee's army and to communicate with the washington authorities from his headquarters but excessive rains and the badness of the roads caused a change of route and the invalid vice-president was therefore saved a most distressing journey from which he would have come quote, bootless home and weather-beaten back unquote. mr mallory the secretary of the confederate navy gave him a small steamer and accompanied by robert ould as his secretary he steamed away to fort monroe in any case his mission would probably have been fruitless but he states only the truth when he claims that he arrived at an unlucky moment 
he communicated with admiral lee in hampton roads on the fourth of july just after lee's march to the north had ended in disastrous failure at gettysburg he sent the admiral a letter stating that he was quote, bearer of a communication in writing from jefferson davis commander-in-chief of the land and naval forces of the confederate states to abraham lincoln commander-in-chief of the land and naval forces of the united states unquote, and that he desired to proceed directly to washington in his own steamer the torpedo the titles by which mr lincoln and mr davis were designated in this note had been the subject of anxious consultation in richmond stephens commission from the confederate president gave mr lincoln the title above quoted to avoid the necessity of claiming the style of president for mr davis but in case mr lincoln should stand upon his dignity and refused the letter addressed to him as commander-in-chief of the army and navy mr davis had prepared for mr stephens a duplicate letter addressed to mr lincoln as president and signed by mr davis in the same style if to this letter objections were made on the ground that mr davis was not recognized to be president of the confederacy mr stephens mission was then to be at an end quote, as such conference unquote, mr davis said quote, is admissible only on a footing of perfect equality unquote. but all this care foresight and punctilio went for nothing as soon as Mr. Lincoln received the telegram in which Admiral Lee announced to the Secretary of the Navy the arrival of Mr. Stephens, he immediately wrote on the back of the dispatch a note to be sent by Mr. Wells to Admiral Lee, in which, without paying any attention whatever to the style of Mr. Stephens' application, he went directly to the heart of the matter. This draft of an order ran as follows. You will not permit Mr. Stephens to proceed to Washington or to pass the blockade. He does not make known the subjects to which the communication in writing from Mr. Davis relates, which he bears and seeks to deliver in person to the President and upon which he desires to confer. Those subjects can only be military, or not military, or partly both. Whatever may be military will be readily received if offered through the well-understood military channel. Of course, nothing else will be received by the President when offered, as in this case, in terms assuming the independence of the so-called confederate states and anything will be received and carefully considered by him when offered by any influential person or persons 
in terms not assuming the independence of the so-called Confederate States. This note he afterwards evidently considered as entering too much into detail, and he therefore caused the Secretary of the Navy to send this brief reply to Admiral Lee. The request of A. H. Steffens is inadmissible. The customary agents and channels are adequate for all needful communication and conference between the United States forces and the insurgents. Mr. Steffens, when he came afterwards to relate the history of this abortive mission, frankly admitted that his ulterior purpose was not so much to act upon Mr. Lincoln and the then ruling authorities at Washington as through them when the correspondence should be published upon the great mass of the people in the northern states who were becoming, he thought, so sensitively alive to the great danger of their own liberties. He wanted, he said, quote, to deeply impress the growing constitutional party at the North with a full realization of the true nature and ultimate tendencies of the war, unquote, to show them quote, that the surest way to maintain their liberties was to allow us the separate enjoyment of ours. Though this hope was baffled by the rebuff which Mr. Stephens received at Fort Monroe, which prevented him from laying before his sympathizing northern friends his view of their endangered liberties and the best means of preserving them, it may be doubted whether the partisans of peace at the north lost anything by this incident. Certainly, throughout the whole summer of 1863, they fought their losing battle with a courage and a determination equal to that which their sympathizers were displaying in the south. But the very energy and malice with which they carried on the contest roused the loyal people of the north to still greater efforts and increased the dimensions of their ultimate triumph. The election in New Hampshire, the first which took place in the spring of 1863, while it brought victory to the Republicans, still gave painful evidence of the bitter hostility of the Democratic Party to the prosecution of the war. Senator Daniel Clark, writing to Mr. Lincoln, said, Scarcely a Democrat supported the administration. Almost every one who had heretofore avowed himself for the Union and the country turned in for peace and party. Yet we have beaten them. They have retired from the field. The two houses in convention will choose a Republican governor, and Frank Pierce in retirement will not have beaten Abraham Lincoln in office." Unquote. There were, after this, during the summer and early autumn, moments of depression and discouragement in which it seemed that the malignant energy displayed 
by the opposition could not be without disastrous effect and as the day of election drew near in the quote, october states unquote, both sides felt justified in renewing their utmost efforts in pennsylvania the contest presented features of special interest andrew g curtin who as governor of the state had given not only efficient but enthusiastic support to the war was opposed by judge george w woodward who as one of the democratic justices of the supreme court of the state had just aimed a blow at the prosecution of the war which would have been fatal if followed up and sustained by other courts he had declared the enrollment law unconstitutional and upon the record thus made had been nominated for governor the friends of mr curtin relied on the war spirit to carry their candidate through and towards the close of the campaign they claimed most injudiciously that general mcclellan whose popularity was still great among the democrats of pennsylvania was in favor of the election of curtin with whom he had always sustained friendly personal relations just on the eve of election this matter came to the attention of mcclellan desiring to keep his political standing with his party intact he sought an interview with judge woodward and published a letter declaring that quote, having had a full conversation with the judge he found that their views agreed and that he regarded his election as governor of pennsylvania called for by the interests of the nation but even this dilatory reinforcement of the peace party was not enough to save their canvas the republicans of the state were as thoroughly alive to the emergency as their opponents and the vote polled was greater by many thousands than had ever been cast before governor curtin was re-elected by a majority of over fifteen thousand and chief justice lowry who with woodward had aimed from the bench the most mischievous blow ever dealt at the enrollment bill was defeated for re-election by daniel agnew and the court thus reconstituted reversed its previous judgment in ohio the contest was marked with equal bitterness and enthusiasm the democrats working against hope but with undaunted persistency for their banished candidate vallandigham were buried under the portentous majority of one hundred thousand votes this overwhelming triumph of the union party in the october states made success certain in the general election of the next month the tide had turned and the current now swept steadily onward in one way the state of new york which had been shaken to its center by the frightful crimes and excitement incident to the draft riots now witnessed a great popular political reaction and reversing the majority of ten thousand 
given to Seymour in 1862, the Republican state ticket was elected by 30,000, and the legislature also passed into the hands of the Unionists. The success of the year, which, as it involved the most important practical results, was dearest to the heart of the president, was that attained in Maryland. The second passage of rebel armies over her territory seemed at last to have purged the secession sentiment from that state, and four Unionists out of her five districts were elected to Congress, and an emancipation state ticket was carried by 20,000 majority. Throughout the West, the Union sentiment asserted itself with irresistible strength. An attempt marked with singular boldness and energy had been made during the year by the leaders of the Peace Party to gain control of the great states of the Northwest, which for a time seemed to them so promising that the rebel emissaries in Canada, being informed of it, gave encouragement to their principals in Richmond to hope for the formation of a Northwestern Confederacy in opposition to the national government. Meetings were continually held, secret societies were everywhere active, and every effort was made in public and in private to form a basis of organized hostility against the government. The details of this important and dangerous movement are not worth recording. Its culmination may be regarded as having taken place at Springfield, Illinois, on the 17th of June. A mass meeting, enormous in numbers and wild with enthusiasm, under the presidency of Senator Richardson, listened during all a summer's day to the most furious and vehement oratory, and at last passed resolutions demanding nothing less than submission to the South. They resolved, quote, that a further offensive prosecution of this war tends to subvert the Constitution and the government and entails upon this nation all the disastrous consequences of misrule and anarchy, unquote that they were, quote, in favor of peace upon a basis of restoration of the Union, unquote, for the accomplishment of which they proposed, quote, a national convention to settle upon terms of peace, which should have in view the restoration of the Union as it was, and the securing by constitutional amendment of such rights of the several states and people thereof as honor and justice demand." Unquote. This bold challenge was accepted by the Republicans with equal determination and superior means. The guns of Vicksburg and of Gettysburg might have been regarded as sufficient answer to the resolutions of the Springfield mass meeting, but the copperheads of that state only clamored the louder peace after these great victories, and the political canvas went on with tenfold vehemence 
in the tacit truce of arms that followed the battles of july the republicans prepared for the beginning of september the greatest mass meeting of the campaign and to give especial significance to the occasion it was to take place at the home of lincoln on the very spot where defiant treason had trumpeted to the world his challenge in june End of chapter 13, part 1